0: Welcome to Episode 2 of The Thermal, I'm your host Harry Tenkate. On this show we speak to competition pilot John Seaborn, who has just won the US 18 meter nationals in Hobbs, New Mexico. We'll hear all about a low save at 1200 feet that turned into a 13,000 foot climb. We will also be talking parachutes and survival with Mr. Parachute, Alan Silver of Silver Parachutes. Is your parachute past its best before date and do you carry survival equipment? If you don't, you probably will after listening to Alan. Finally, an interview with a glider pilot who knows all about adversity. Wayne McDonald survived a workplace injury that put him in a wheelchair, but that also resulted in Wayne becoming a licensed glider pilot. Hear his story later and a whole lot more on edition number two of The Thermal. American pilot John Seaborn recently won the U.S. 18-meter Nationals flying his Jonker JS-3 Rapture in Hobbs, New Mexico. There were eight contest days with outstanding conditions, 18,000-foot cloud bases with very high task speeds, but there were also difficult days with challenging conditions. John worked his way up from sixth place on day one to first place on day five, a position he held on to for the rest of the competition. John is now back home in Longmont, Colorado, which is where I reached him. John, congratulations. Sounds like a very hard fought contest for you.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of great pilots in that uh, contest. Um, you know, Jersey, of course, that comes from your area, but uh, there were a lot of great US pilots uh, as well. And um, I'm just really gratified to actually have won the contest on, uh, um, going in the last day.
0: <laughs> now, talk to me a little about uh, the conditions there. What's it like to fly in Hobbs, New Mexico?
1: Hobbs is really a special place. Um, it's in sort of the uh, furthest south and east part of New Mexico uh, that you can get to. So it has access to the Caprock area, which is um, typically a kind of a wild um, area in brush. And and um, then it has access out to the farmland that is usually more east and, uh, and a little north of uh, Hobbs. So it has two distinct um, uh, areas that uh, you can fly in. The oil business down there has really taken off. Um, It's been a a big deal for the last, uh, you know, five or six years uh, and longer in Hobbs. It has a long tradition there. But the conditions can be anywhere from uh, absolutely booming. On, like, day three of the contest, we got to 17,000 feet. We routinely climbed between uh, 7 and uh, 10 knots, and uh, we were able to run cloud streets. And then we also had a variety of weather where it was – blue and uh, low and we all stuck together in a gaggle. So Hobbs serves up a variety of weather which makes the contest interesting. Now talk to me about what you were flying. Um, I'm flying the new JS3 an 18 meter uh, from South Africa. The company is Yonker of course but um, I just got the glider about two months before the actual contest and uh, had about six hours in it So, and hadn't flown with water by the time I got down there so I was a little bit low on the learning curve. Um, the glider itself is absolutely uh, amazing. Sounds
0: like you did all right on the learning curve.
1: Yeah, I um, was a little suspect on the glider. I, um, because it gets to such a, a heavy um, uh, 600 uh, uh, kilos, um, or just over 1,300 pounds, it has a very small wing area and can get to a very heavy wing loading, about 12.4 pounds per square foot. And so that was much heavier than I've been used to flying, and I had some uh, concern about whether it would, uh, just handling the glider generally, and how it would perform uh, in climb. And um, that were two things I had to kind of work out the first couple of days I'd flown it, which were thankfully practice days. So. so how does it feel, the, the glider? How are the controls? Um, It's a very uh, enjoyable glider to fly. In 18-meter, it handles much like you would fly a 15-meter glider. My previous glider was a Ventus 2 BX. That glider is an amazing handling machine, probably the best handling glider um, out there. And uh, it it, uh, flies very similar to that. In 18-meter, very heavy. It doesn't require much rudder. Um, It uh, really climbs nicely at about... uh, 63 knots or so fully loaded and um it runs uh, just an amazing uh, run it it at, at the high wing loading it uh, is a very uh, strong performer in the run
0: now and and i saw some speeds that were i think 100 miles per hour
1: yeah that was on a day uh, on day three i believe it was um and uh that was the day i was mentioning earlier and it, it, it the seventeen thousand foot cloud base and uh Long runs under the streets allow you to do um, these uh, kind of amazing speeds uh, over uh, quite a distance. It was almost 400 miles, and I did almost 100 miles an hour. The open-class uh, gentleman, Jim Lee, who won the day, was also flying a Yonker JS-1C in 21-meter, and he uh, did over 100 miles an hour for over 400. Um, but uh, I was surprised uh, how little difference there is between the 18-meter uh, JS-3 and the uh larger JS1C and 21-meter. Those two are very comparable. Now, you worked
0: your way up from sixth place on, on day one up to first place. How do you keep your head in the game? What's your strategy?
1: Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, uh, I look at each day and kind of decide strategically what's required by the day, and that's, there are two factors in that. One is has to do with the weather, and the second factor has to do with where you are on the score sheet. Um, but once you get in the cockpit and get everything bolted down and go through the start gate, uh, you just kind of try and do the best you can with, with the weather you have. Um, there were a couple instances in Hobbs where I had a decent lead and, and flew strategically, but most of the time you're trying to do as well as you can with the weather you have, uh, aside from strategic concerns and aside from you know, where you are on the score sheet per se.
0: So when you're flying, are you just concentrating on yourself in the glider, or are you trying to think ahead where the other competitors are and what they may be doing?
1: Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a combination. Um, I'm kind of a somewhat of a lone wolf flyer. I, I decided a long time ago I'd rather um, make a mistake with my own plan than follow somebody else's plan and make their mistake. So I tend to try and make decisions on my own and fly uh, on my own. That doesn't mean that I don't take advantage of other pilots decision-making and watching them but mostly you're focused in you know I think the Polish team has this little saying where you're focused in the the 30 meter range which is right around you what's going on the the 3,000 meter range which is you know a mile or so ahead and the and the 30 kilometer range which is happening strategically way down course and those are the three focus areas that I really look at um, is to to look at what's happening close, what's happening in mid-range, and what's happening, you know, thirty or forty miles down the track, um, that that kind of that focus needs to be revisited about every five or ten minutes while you're flying. Huh.
0: Now, th- what about the equipment you have? What kind of uh, glide computer are you using?
1: Um, this year, um, I was using an LX nine thousand in the JS three, and uh, I went with an All X pan- on. All LX Nav panel this, uh, with this glider, and um, there's a very steep learning curve with flight computers these days. They do so much. Um, you know, I, I come from the the analog, uh, uh, yeah. pneumatically driven <laughs> world, and uh, and over the years, these flight computers have gotten more and more sophisticated. And the LX nine thousand, I think, is kind of a pinnacle of that in a lot of ways. And
0: what else do you? do uh, when you're flying? Do you have any specific things that come to staying comfortable? um, Hydration, food? Obviously you're carrying oxygen if you're getting to 18,000 feet. What what else do you do while you're flying?
1: Um, Flying in the west is a little bit critical that you have uh, enough hydration. Uh, The surface temperatures in Hobbs on some days were over 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So um, Staying hydrated in that environment is tough. Uh, I always carry um, about uh, five liters of water on board for drinking, and that seems like a lot, but in reality, on a hot day, you can drink at least three liters during a four-hour flight. And if you land out someplace, um, particularly in, in the Western environment, you can be on the ground for four or five hours before your crew shows up. And if you don't have water during that period of time, you'll find yourself in real trouble. So I always have a little bit more water on board than I think I'm going to use in a flight in case I land someplace and I have to, to uh, take advantage of that extra water on the ground. As far as food goes, I usually um, have an energy bar, um, and uh, I tend not – in my business world, it's pretty busy, so I tend not to eat lunch, and that works pretty well with a soaring world because I never have had a sumptuous lunch in a glider cockpit. Right, right.
0: Yeah. Let's get back to the contest. Now on on day 5 you got to first place and you were competing with my flying colleague here in Canada Jersey. What right. uh, how did you stay in first place after that? Was there anything particularly important that you were doing? What contributed to that win?
1: Well, there were there were really three things involved with with that particular um day but uh i had two days where i had penalty points um for low finish and that was partly being unfamiliar with the lx system but it was also partly um just my own stupidity i just needed to pull back on the stick a little sooner uh when crossing the finish line and they weren't major points and i was something like 15 or 20 feet below the the finish altitude but um, the recorder put me below the altitude and so um I, I didn't want to lose the contest by penalty points that I had um, done myself. So on that particular day, there was a um, a point, a big thunderstorm to the uh, south, and there was a point where you had to make a decision of what to do with that thunderstorm. And I decided to go straight across a rather dead area and got to the other side at a rather low altitude, um, about 1,200 feet, which is way too low in this environment and way too low generally you're 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 really taking a big risk there but it was an active area that I could see and there were cues and dust devils and and um I got a very good thermal off the, off the deck there and got up to uh, uh racing altitude again which is about 13 or 14000 that really uh made that day for me everything else was about the same I think as jersey did but that decision was a little bit different and uh, was a very it probably in hindsight a, a risky decision but also uh, one that um you know got me a, a decent speed and um and got me to uh, the lead which was uh, which was good
0: what, what are your land out options there
1: um sean fielder was with me in in this particular um uh, decision process and and unfortunately sean was about um uh, oh five or eight hundred feet lower and he didn't get the thermal but there were good options uh, as far as land out there uh, along the highway there. There were some good fields, and uh, there were some big fields uh, that were uh, circular uh, alfalfa fields. And they had cut the alfalfa so that it wasn't high. And um, I had got a closer than I want to look at those. Um, the, the JS-3 does have a turbine or a jet in it. But um, any uh, motor glider pilot will tell you that that um, that's more of a luxury that's not to be relied on. You need to have one one foot in the field and one foot on your on your engine when you're when you're making those decisions.
0: And because this is a new glider to you, you're probably not thinking about that too much. I would imagine.
1: I haven't flown sustainers and I haven't flown jets, and I'm I'm not a power plane uh, pilot, so. Um, the concept of 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 an engine and a glider is still a little alien <laughs> to me um, so I, I literally told my wife i 'll probably land off field and then remember I have the jet while i 'm sitting in the field so
0: right. well it still sounds like a fabulous contest overall and and uh, what a what a great win for you
1: yeah, it was very gratifying i um Last year at Uvalde, I was leading a fifteen meter class on the last day. Um, and made a a very bad strategic decision and actually landed out on that day, which was um, mentally difficult for me. I, uh, I, I don't like doing that kind of thing, obviously. And um, there were two good things out of that uh, event. One is um, I got to meet the uh, the very nice landowner, which was a cattle rancher from uh, Bracketville, uh, which was just down the street from the Valley. And I uh, got a hug from Dick Butler, who said, you know, it's going to be okay. And uh, both those things I thought were great.
0: <laughs> John, listen, b- before I let you go, tell me a little bit about your, your history with gliding. How did you get into the sport?
1: Yeah, I... Um, um, I was attracted to soaring as a, as a child. I, I really liked aviation, and, you know, every airplane that went by, I had to know what it was and where it was going and the heading and, you know, all of um But one thing that I grew up on a cattle ranch in central California, and um, I'm dyslexic, and I had a really hard time in school. And so uh, my parents were, were smart enough to look around and say, well, what else is this kid you know, interested in. And I love falconry. And so I became a very young falconer. Um, Living on a cattle ranch is a perfect entree to falconry because you have the space and the birds are there. And I got a state license and worked through the whole falconry program. But when I flew this bird, I I just, something in me just um, came to the forefront. I just said, wow, that is just amazing. And I then I saw a, a Disney film called The Boy Who Soared with Condors. And yep. it was in California. It was about soaring and it had a love interest. So I thought, wow, what, what could be better for a twelve or fourteen year old kid? You know? I mean that's perfect. So I um I looked up in through the SSA who our local soaring club was and I asked my dad if we could go down and uh and fly, um, meet the, meet the club members. And so we went down, I was, uh, I think 13 years old at this point. And the first guy I met was a guy named Gary Kemp, who uh, was an avid cross country pilot and, um, was very interested in, uh, uh, education because he was the principal of the local high school there. So, uh, Gary and I became fast friends. He taught me how to fly and infused in me kind of a cross country mindset, you know, some way of, uh, of going cross country uh, as part of soaring. And so I thought that was a great thing and uh, and flew all up and down the Central Valley um, with Gary. And I owned a BG12 and a PIK20 and a Venice and some other gliders. But really that was um, helped along by my parents who sort of saw this as a way of uh, almost an alternative education to the education in formal education that I was really struggling under in, in school. And I went down to get a college degree and, and a bachelor of science and the rest of it. But I really credit soaring for uh, saving me in some ways because uh, that really was a seminal point in my life. And, uh, and um, I think as a young person, the responsibility of soloing and learning the the, um, the craft of soaring and learning the, the you know the, the FAA uh, part of it was a critical part in my development. I know. And I talk to a lot of young pilots, and they say it's sort of a similar thing.
0: That's a that's a great story. I really uh, enjoyed uh, hearing that story, especially the bit about learning how to become a falconer.
1: Yeah, and uh, I um, I still have the original falconry book uh, that I have. We had a library in the little town I grew up in called Three Rivers, and the library was maybe four hundred books, you know, and it was it was run by you know uh, the librarian who'd been there for thirty years, kind of thing, and they had a book on falconry. And uh so i went when I was interested in this, I went to the library, I checked it out. I read the thing fourteen times, and uh, our local fire marshal was also a falconer, so he and I were the uh, were the uh, falconers in town, and uh, he was about fifty, and I was about twelve right, and <laughs> that right. worked out fine.
0: well, John, listen, thank you very much for uh, for speaking to me today. It's been a, a real Pleasure chatting, and good luck with your, your future contest flying. It sounds like, what, you know, if this is your, your first contest in this new glider, I can only imagine how well you're going to do into the future.
1: Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the JS3, and then, and uh, my wife and I are, are um, uh, you know, 60-plus, and we're thinking about doing uh, a little more flying, a little less working in the future. So I'm happy about that.
0: Sounds like an excellent plan. Thanks again.
1: Thank you. John
0: Seaborn is a world-class competition pilot, and he just won the U.S. 18-meter Nationals in Hobbs, New Mexico. John's home club is the Soaring Society of Boulder, Colorado. You can look at some of John's winning flights on the OLC. I'll put up a link on the Thermal's Facebook page as well. John is also a past recipient of the Soaring Society of America's Outstanding Achievement Award for his work with the U.S. gliding team. Now a quick note about our sponsor, Fox One Corporation, the place to go for all your gliding avionics, instrumentation, and software needs. Dave Springford is the man behind Fox One Corp. He's a world-class competition pilot who was also at Hobbs competing in the 18-meter class. Dave knows what he's talking about, so get in touch with him at foxonecorp.com and talk to him about your needs. That's foxonecorp, all one word, dot com. <coughs> How many of us glider pilots really give a second thought about our parachutes? Most of us have been wearing the same chute for years, occasionally look at the D-ring and start chasing thermals. Well it's in all our interest to start paying a little bit more attention to our life-saving equipment. Alan Silver made his first jump in 1962 at the age of 17 and now has over 3,200 parachute jumps as a sport and professional skydiver. Alan has been an FAA master rigger since 1974, has also served three terms as the chairman of the Parachute Industry Association Rigging Committee. A lot of his knowledge comes from spending 25 years with the U.S. Coast Guard, where he worked as a survival equipment technician, working with parachutes, life rafts, and other life-saving equipment. I've reached Alan Silver in Sonora, California. Alan, welcome to The Thermal.
2: Thank you very much. Now, Alan,
0: what should glider pilots in particular, what, well, I guess it's for all pilots, but what should they be thinking about every time they strap on a parachute?
2: Well, they should be practicing before and after each flight. Uh, one of my uh, comments is, uh, well, basically, I was attended one with psychologists, and they, they claim that only 10% of our defi- decision-making is based on fact. And the other 90% is based on emotion. Well, this is not the time to uh, sit there and go, uh, what do I do? We're working in seconds here. So practicing before and after each flight is critical so it becomes muscle memory.
0: So when you say practice, what do you mean? Like literally getting in the cockpit with your chute and then
2: trying to get out, doing that regularly? Yeah. First off, you should get the parachute on outside the aircraft. Uh, if, if that's difficult, for example, I'll go from glider to a warbird where they have to climb up inside. It's a lot harder to get into the airplane. So I don't mind if you put the parachute on inside the airplane, but don't ever take it off inside the airplane. There's been numerous documented cases of people bailing out without the parachute on because that's what they're used to doing. So at least simulate, I, I suggest putting it on, Go through, through the motions, which is in my handout material, which is on my website in which I show people. Uh, I consider there's three correct ways to pull a rib cord. So you practice those. Get in the airplane and think about how do I jettison my canopy? Uh, do I do that first or do my seat belts? It's very, very important that the seatbelt is the last thing you do before you exit. So I call it canopy belts and butt in that order. Um, that's the only thing holding you And what what I was going to conclude with is when you land and safely off the runway, simulate jettisoning the canopy, simulate where am I going to put my hands? You may get ejected out of the aircraft, you know, and then undo your seatbelt and then get out. And as soon as you get out of the glider, look, find reach and simulate pulling the ripcord and then take it off in a certain order. If you have a chest strap, do it first and then the leg straps because if you do the leg straps and are being dragged across the ground in a high winds, the chest strap could come up and choke you.
0: Right. Wow. I never thought of that. Good, good tips. Alan, do you recommend pilots who wear emergency parachutes to actually go jumping, go to a, a jump school and take a couple jumps?
2: You know, a lot of pilots do that. And it's just one less thing to think about, but it's not necessary if you practice. But a lot of them go out and I always call it, they take up, you are going to make a tandem jump typically where you're strapped to the front of somebody. And keep in mind that those are rectangular parachutes, a flying wing. They're not around parachutes. And that's one of the things that I make sure that they understand is on a flying wing or rectangular parachute, just before you land you pull down both of the steering handles located above your shoulders to flare, similar to landing an aircraft. On a round parachute, you never ever pull both handles down at the same time. Uh, you can sink. you. So if you want to do a right turn, you pull right. You pull left handle to turn left. If the left arm doesn't work, just say it got injured, you can do a a 90 left by doing a 270 right. And so I go over this. If you pull it down only two or three inches, you, you turn exceptionally slow. The steering handles on your parachute are designed to miss life-threatening obstacles, typically stay away from roads where there could be power line, and then face into the wind on landing.
0: Well, knowledge really is survival with this. I mean, I've, I've been wearing a parachute for a long time, but just hearing you now, I'm going to be going back and going over a lot of this stuff. Um, it's
2: very good to be hearing this. I have a uh, one of the questions you may be asking me is how how old uh, or a parachute is before it should be retired. I um, was going to
0: actually, I was going to actually, I was going to ask you that in combination with glider pilots, we're wearing those things and sweating in them like crazy. <laughs> I, that must do damage to these things.
2: Uh, it typically sweat doesn't do too much. I mean, most of the containers are semi-water repellent. And and, I mean, you could take a damp sponge and just wipe it off. A lot of people, uh, because you're up so long, they'll, for example, the softy line, I have provisions that just snaps. You can snap on a a sweat pad or a cotton sweat pad or a sheepskin. The sweat pads are really good for an FBO that's 20 people are using the same parachute. They can swap the pads out so you're not leaning against somebody's stinking pad, you know, and and stuff. But uh, typically it does not uh, bother it, although sweating can corrode some of the metal hardware and it looks kind of tacky looking. Uh, The most damage is done by the fact that people leave parachutes in their aircraft with the sun beating down, or I attended a uh, um, I don't remember what it was. It's, uh, one of the glider competitions, I know you certain meter competitions, and it was in Texas. And they must have had 30 gliders lined up on the runway, all with the one wing down. And about out of the 30, I think 25 had parachutes sitting on them to hold the wing down. Uh, that is just absolutely detrimental to the parachutes, even though the material is treated for UV. It's not impervious. Right to uv and this is one of the reasons while i was chairman of the parachute industry association's uh, rigging committee we set up we were all doing tests on the fabric non-destructive pull tests on the parachute material not the harness per se and we discovered that these non destructive tests typically they were to 40 pounds we would pull the material. They shouldn't even rip till 75 or 80, and we were having some of them just explode, like a wet Kleenex at 8, 10, 11 pounds, something like All from like UV that. damage. Yeah, and it's UV damage, and people said, well, you know, gee, did I hook up this devices to test the material incorrectly? So I did studies around the world, got information, and it discovered something that the parachutes, other than a couple that had something actually spilled on them, Pretty much every parachute was 25 years of age or older, had been left lying around in the sun. And so we recommended, strongly recommended, all parachutes be removed from service in 20 years. And that includes the harness and container that they're in. And I further went and checked with the mills that manufactured the material. And they said, well, of course it's going to deteriorate. Every year it gets a little bit weaker simply because, because it's a chemical product. So so, so dumb,
0: dumb question. My parachute, I've got a softy with the, the glider I fly. Mm-hmm. Is there a date on it, a manufacturing date?
2: Absolutely. All parachutes have that. Uh, if you happen to have a softy right up in the nape of the neck area, like where a tag would be on your shirt, uh, you pull it out and it has the serial number and the date of manufacture of the harness and container in that pocket should be a card which is the maintenance records. It's just like having your aircraft maintenance records. Right, that I've record. seen
0: because we get it repacked regularly, but I haven't looked at the other stuff.
2: Look at the other side of that card because it'll have on there what type of a parachute, the serial number and the date of manufacture of that parachute. Typically, they are very close to each other. For example, if it's married uh, manufactured in, in June of this year, the parachute inside comes from, say, a different company and it may be May. Uh, so, But they're very close, but it's also, possible that something was damaged, and uh, this is why I tell people don't ever buy anything on eBay, trade a plane without right, right. checking out this information. The parachute inside could be 20 plus years old, and the container is new. And new doesn't mean it looks new, it goes by the age of manufacture, and 20 years is it. You, you need to be safe. Yeah,
0: so speaking of being safe, uh, I also fly with a spot messenger. And mm-hmm. I usually clip it on to the right of my chest harness. Is that good or bad?
2: Unless the spot is in, for example, I make a uh, a kit. <laughs> it's an acronym. It's my son dubbed it. years a smack pack. It's, it's an acronym for Save My Ass Kit, and it's stuck. Uh, I like it that. It velcros around the webbing, and the larger kits also velcro and snap on. There's been more than one incident, including, I believe, this last year, where a pilot bailed out with, just the manufacturer's little bracket, which is supposed to be around your belt or something, and it just snapped off.
0: So your suggestion is having something that's certified, like your, your smack pack that attaches properly, and you can probably put more things into it than just your spot messenger, I gather.
2: Well, I uh, in, that, in the, the kit now, the newer spotter and reach units are small, you know, like a pack of cigarette size. So I, I make the, the package about that size but there's also an internal pocket. Uh, All my years with the Air Force, uh, 18 of those years with pararescue, and we went out looking for people. So they need, need to be seen. So inside the internal pocket is a signal mirror, whistle and fire starter, whistle because you may be in dense trees and somebody can hear you. And on the outside of all my kits, whether you get the very, very basic kit that doesn't have room for a spot, there's a hook knife seat belt cutter on the outside. If you know, if you were upside down in your glider, uh, it's almost—it's very hard sometimes to release a seat belt because of the pressure. And the hook knife cuts through it like a, like a hot, a hot knife and butter. Uh, keep in mind that this equipment needs to be on you. I mean, a lot of pilots say, "Well, no, I have survival equipment in my aircraft." No, that's called camping equipment. Right, right. <laughs> It if it's on equipment. you, yeah. it's survival yeah. equipment, but it has to stay on you. Right,
0: right, right. Alan, finally, listen, you've been selling parachutes for a long time to a lot of glider pilots as well. Are there any particular stories of, of your parachutes saving lives that you uh, can tell us about?
2: Well, my, if, if uh, yeah, I mean, my civilian saves, I have about 87 over the years. Really? But, uh uh, most of those, I call them silly skydivers that can't pack their main parachute right, so they have gone. But I have probably 25 actual aircraft emergencies. And one thing I want to make sure that I always tell people is uh, when you're wearing a parachute, uh, they don't understand how long it takes for the parachute to open. All parachutes, typically no matter how uh, they're tested or who manufactures them, they all must be fully open going as slow as they are ever going to go in three seconds or less from the time you pull the ripcord. In reality, it's closer to two seconds. So at the end of that two seconds, if you're only six inches off the ground, you just got lucky, and it's tradition to always buy your parachute rigger a bottle of their choice. If that happened to you, you had to buy them at least two bottles. But what changes is so, not So you, you've had a couple of bottles in your lifetime? Uh, yes, I have. Um several. The biggest thing people think, well, how long does it take to open? Well the time is pretty consistent, but the difference is the attitude. Let's say you, for example, uh you had some control, you were able to trade off some airspeed for altitude, jettisoned the canopy, your belts, you dove out, you look, you found, you reached and pulled the ripcord, your chute is opening sort of in the trajectory of the aircraft as you start your descent. You may only lose 150 feet in that two to three seconds. One of my more significant bailouts, the the aircraft was out of control, spinning towards the ground at a high rate of speed. It still took about two to three seconds to open, but he lost almost 800 feet in that that time. So make a decision early where the insurance company owns your aircraft so you have plenty of, of altitude so you can enjoy the ride down. I mean, this particular bailout the person said everything worked great. The only disappointing thing was the parachute ride was fun, but it was only 10 seconds.
0: <laughs> Listen, I, I also understand you're now semi-retired. You're doing a lot of your own flying. Do you wear
2: a parachute yes. when you're out flying? It depends on what I'm flying. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard when I only have one parachute and I'm taking a passenger and convincing yeah, them yeah. that yeah. if there's an emergency, I'll go for help and be right yeah, back. That's but, right. Yeah. Uh, certainly, if I'm doing aerobatics. And, and actually, when I do cross-country work, like I was flying with my son the other day, I, I have a couple of parachutes. Why not wear them? I am small. I need a cushion anyhow. Right. Uh, why put a real cushion behind me when the parachute would probably come down a little bit slower than hanging onto a, a cushion? So, you know, I, I wear one on, on occasions. But, uh, you know, the biggest thing is practicing ahead of time. And, and I'm always available for people to call me. Or email me with a question. You know, I'm, I'm more than happy to answer those questions because I don't even sell a parachute to somebody unless they know how to use it. Right. It, you know, the the very basics. It's critical. Uh, it's not the time to go out there and wish you had the manual in your hand and trying to read it and the page blew off in the wind. Right.
0: Alan, listen. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you with you speaking with you this podcast and this interview in particular. I think it's going to make a difference. I've had hundreds of downloads on this this podcast, and even if it only makes a difference for one pilot out there, it's been absolutely worth it. So, thank you very much for your time. Greatly appreciate You're, it. And, and uh,
2: yeah, well, I really appreciate you contacting me. It's, it's important. Uh, education is so critical for someone to save their life in an emergency. Thanks, Alan. Take care. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Alan Silver spoke to me from Sonora, California. His website, silverparachutes.com, is a treasure trove of information. Do yourself a favor and spend some time going over some of his articles on emergency bailout procedures. It may just save your life. That's silverparachutes, all one word.com. Flying in general, and gliding in particular, is a way to escape gravity and enjoy the wonders of flight. For many, the biggest hurdle is overcoming the fear of flight. For others, the biggest hurdles to overcome are physical disabilities. Freedom Wings Canada is part of Freedom Wings International. These organizations provide rides for the disabled and flight training for those who want to take it to the next level. Wayne McDonald is a man who doesn't let his disabilities get in the way of the things he wants to do. He's a certified scuba diver, musician, writer, and athlete. He's also the second paraplegic in Canada to become a licensed glider pilot. I reached Wayne McDonald in Brampton, Ontario, and I began by asking him about how he got involved with gliding.
3: I learned about Freedom's Wings up at York Soaring and decided to have a go at that and see where, what I felt, you know, how I felt about it. And I instantly got hooked and then that, it, it sort of just went on from there.
0: When did you figure out that you'd be able to fly gliders and how did that work for you?
3: I love flight so I thought well you know I can give this a shot. It just started from there just kind of snowballed. I I like the club. I've been there for coming on 17 years now.
0: Do you remember your first flight?
3: Well absolutely. I mean to me actually I, I write for a disability magazine. I, did, I wrote an article about it and I Said to me, every flight's a new flight. It's it's, it's like I never flown before. When uh, the wheels lift off the ground, it's it's a whole new experience. Uh, no matter how many times you do it, but I certainly do remember my first flight. But you know, the one thing I I distinctly remember is trying to uh, stay behind the towplane plane without you know fluttering back and forth like a a wounded bird. So, so it's, uh,
0: that brings me to the hand controls. I mean, for able-bodied people staying behind a tow plane is enough of a challenge. You've got hand controls that do rudder, elevator. I'm not quite sure how it all works. Describe to me how your controls work and the challenges associated with that.
3: Well, I mean, you have the the central stick for your ailerons, which is what an able-bodied person uses. And what they've done is they've transferred the the rudder effects up to a hand uh, lever to your left, and it's, you push the, the lever forward for uh, your rudder, uh, I believe it's left, right, or left forward, right back, and that will adjust your rudder in in coordinated flight. So, the, the ability to use both your hands as opposed to your feet and your hands, isn't that much of a, you know, it, it takes a bit of, Doing, but it's not something that where you go. Oh my God! There's just no way I can do this. Um, I think your brain's a very ama- amazing part of your body, and it it helps you reconnect different things that you know you don't think are possible.
0: Sorry, quick. What about your feet? Are they uh, just free in the cockpit, or are they attached? How does that work?
3: Well, they're just free in the cockpit. I usually can put my my toes in underneath the uh, like if a able-bodied person puts his uh, feet into the cockpit and they, you know, they hook their foot, the the top of their foot under the, the ring, you know, to, to press either way on the rudders. I can do the same thing, but my feet are just, you know, they don't have any effect on the rudder and they don't impede the rudder, um, you know, because my, my knees bend just like everyone else's knees. So it's just a matter of, you know, again, your brain saying, okay, well, your legs aren't working right now. So this is how you have to do it.
0: So take me to training. You've got a a able-bodied instructor in the back with normal controls. I imagine you're in the front with the modified controls. Is the training any more difficult or just the same as an able-bodied person? Talk, talk me through that.
3: You're being trained just as, as a able-bodied pilot would be trained with all the, the same parameters. Uh, so, you know, your first day of training is just like anybody else coming to the field and saying, I want to learn how to fly a glider. Uh, now, you know, me getting in and out of the plane was, a, took a little bit of, uh, it took a little bit of time, but I, I now can get it in and out of the plane on my own. Um, cause fortunately I do have pretty strong upper body and, and I'm, uh, you know, an adventurer by, by nature. So. When I see a challenge, I don't look at it and go, "Oh, well, that's just too much for me." I say, "Well, you know, how can I get over it, around it, or under it?"
0: So, so let's get back to the training. How long did it take you to uh, to get solo and and finally achieve your license?
3: Well, there's a funny part. I mean, I started flying in 2006, the summer of 2006, and I I went, you know, I was living in Georgetown at the time, so I was very close to the field, and I spent basically the whole summer flying because with the freedom's wings program if you're a disabled pilot and you get your medical cleared um, you can get all your training done uh, on freedom's wings dime and then once you're licensed that's when you you know have to pay your own way so i was flying you know maybe four times a day sometimes five days a week depending on the weather of course and I, i quickly became solo and But the caveat was that, uh, you know, I had run into some medical issues along the way in those, you know, past 15, 16 years that have uh, sidelined me from continuing to fly at times. And so I didn't really get fully licensed as a uh, glider pilot till um, two years ago.
0: But that's still a, a big achievement in your life, I can tell.
3: Oh, absolutely! I mean, you know, I, I, gliding is, it's it's its own entity, really. I mean, when you're soaring beside an eagle, or a hawk that's soaring in the same thermal you are, that's 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 a, you know, sometimes a once in a lifetime uh,
1: feeling.
0: So I'm still trying to get my head around the hand controls, as, and I actually need to come up and have a look at these gliders sometimes to, to get my head around that. Are there any challenges, like, I don't know, crosswind landings or something? There, is there something that's more difficult to, to do using these controls than the normal set of controls?
3: Well, I mean, landing in crosswinds is a, is a, a um, challenge for any pilot, really, uh, depending on the strength of the crosswind and whatnot. I guess it's just you kind of have to go with the flow, I guess, is the best answer I can really give you because we all know that uh, at the end of the day, um you've got to add rudder to your descent path right you know
0: but at the same time it's almost like you need a third hand because with your left hand then you're you're operating both the rudder and the air brakes
3: yeah basically and and it can it can feel a little uh hairy at times but uh i've always landed successfully not the most pretty of landings but um Never in a never in a dangerous manner, but it's one of those things where you know that's there's that saying right? It's it's better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than in the air wishing you're on the ground. Yeah, so, absolutely. So you know, I I kind of pick and choose when I fly. Um, again, you know, Mother Nature is always the uh, dictator of of gliding.
0: Listen. T- t- tell me about uh, the gliders that you fly. What What are they?
3: Well, the, the one that I fly is a K twenty one, and it was brought over from Europe. So the hand controls were actually factory installed. Everything was done, um, you know, just like a, a car with all the options added. This plane was brought in, and it's very. It's a very. It's very stable. It's very um, responsive. You know, you put that. You pull the nose up and try to stall it, and it's pretty much impossible to stall.
0: You you sound like one of those guys where the glasses always half full, no matter what. I've tried. I mean, you know, I'm not perfect. Believe me,
3: I've had my I've had my share of bad days, but uh, I try to be more on top of things and under them. Um, when I first was injured, I remember seeing a, a counselor, and she said to me, "You know, you're the kind of guy that if you can't get over it, you'll get around it. If you can't get around it, you'll get under it." Yeah. So, and I guess it's been like that for me. Um,
0: So, listen, what, what, in the big picture, what kind of difference has gliding made to your life, and uh, what, what are your next flying goals? Are you cross country, five hundred? What, what, what are you thinking?
3: Gliding for me is just, uh, it's, it's an escape from, from, everything. Um, I, I have a, I have a hard time being on terra firma. It's kind of boring. So, you know, it's either up in the air or, or diving in the ocean. Um those two places are my happy places, but, uh, gliding just brought me a lot of, a lot of peace. Like it's, it's a peaceful, um, like I'm singing away up in the air, you know, it's just, it just brings me peace.
0: Wayne, it's been a, a pleasure speaking with you. I, I wish you the best in your flying endeavors and, uh, hopefully we'll see you, uh, up in the sky somewhere. Absolutely. I, I appreciate the, uh, the time. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. You too, Bye. Wayne McDonald spoke to me from Brampton, Ontario. For more information on Freedom Wings Canada, go to freedomwings.ca. If you're interested in finding out if Freedom Wings operates in your country, Google Freedom Wings International or the National Gliding Association in your country for more information. That's it for edition two of The Thermal. I will be back again next month with another show that will include a fascinating interview on combat gliders, used on D-Day and Operation Market Garden. There will also be an interview about the life and times of British gliding icon Derek Piggott. That's all on the next edition of The Thermal. New shows will show up on the first Saturday of every month. If you like this podcast, please go to iTunes or Google Play and give us a review. And while you're at it, email the link to your gliding buddies. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at thethermalpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. Thanks for listening to edition number two of The Thermal.